This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. For years, I was so fed up with shampoo, I just stopped washing my hair. I quit completely. I was so sick of poofy, frizzy, limp hair, distorting my natural oils. Until a few months ago, I found modern mammals and it changed everything. And by the way, right now you can visit modernmammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. So check that out. So look, I heard about this through the podcast and before I agreed to advertise, they sent it to me and I was reluctant. But let me tell you, I should not have been. This stuff is absolutely magical. My hair felt better, smelled way better, and most importantly, looked better. And I know it will do the same for you as well. It doesn't have those hair-ruining chemicals like other products, and it doesn't leave any leftover residues. It works. Don't believe me? Go read their awesome reviews online as well. Go to ModernMammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. Again, that's ModernMammals.com for 10% off with promo code LSS. Don't forget to use our promo code LSS so they know we sent you. Everybody, shout out to my sinners worldwide and welcome back to another episode of my podcast, Lead Singer Syndrome. As always, I am your host, Shane Told, as I take you into the minds, into the souls, well, just more, more the minds, sometimes the souls. And it is so nice to have you. Happy New Year. What are we, week three now? Uh, I'm feeling great so far. Uh, I know last week I spoke a little bit about my um, <laughs> colonoscopy I had. I had some crazy uh, stuff going on, and all the results came back negative. I am good to go, and I feel like so good. I don't know what, maybe it's just in my head or whatever. I have no idea, but I'm feeling awesome. New Year's resolution is on track, and I'm feeling really good about today's episode with the one and only Just Insane the frontman of Anti-Flag. If you missed last week, this is we're right in the middle here of a two-parter with one of, I call them, a legendary punk rock band, the almighty Anti-Flag from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And if you missed last week, we spoke to the kind of co-frontman, bass player, Chris Number 2. It was a great episode, one of my favorites. So listen to this one first. Don't stop and go back. Finish this one out, but make sure you head back to last week's episode and check that one out as well. Before we get into that, I want to remind you guys all that the Silverstein Tour starts this week. Friday night, we're going to be in Cleveland, Ohio. We're going all across the country, wherever you live, East Coast, Texas, West Coast. We're going to be hitting it all, and we're doing it with some great friends and an awesome band all the way from Australia 
Tonight Alive. So it's a co-headlining tour. We also have Broadside and Picturesque as well. Tickets available. Go to thegetfreetour.com. That's the name of the tour, The Get Free Tour. Thegetfreetour.com. Pick it up. We've got VIP packages, general admission, whatever you want. Please come out. Say hi to me. If you see me walking around, stop me. Say hello. It's going to be an awesome awesome tour we're we're doing some a couple things a little different this time not just you know switching up the set list we always do that we're gonna try to do a couple little tricks here and there so uh i think it's gonna be a really really great evening so if we're coming to your town and if you're american we probably are check it out big shout out to all the members of the all access club all the new members that have joined and of course all the old members that have been with it now for over a year if you don't know what i'm talking about I'm going to tell you right now, if one episode a week isn't enough, if if you find yourself just, oh, that was such a great episode, and you go back and you're like, I've listened to them all, what am I going to do? I have to wait a whole week? If that's you, you need the All Access Club. The link, leadsingersyndrome.com slash access. And for as little as $6 a month, you get all kinds of stuff. You get access to bonus episodes, you get merchandise shipped to your house, a question and answer session with me every month, the ability to buy Lead Singer Cinder merchandise, it's only available to members of the All Access Club, and a great community with other fans of the show and myself, we're always on there talking shit, it's a good time, trust me, so I won't harp on it again, like I know I talk about it every week, and you guys are probably skipping that 15 second forward button right now, but check it out, it is leadsingersyndrome.com slash access. it's only $6 a month. And it really does help us keep the lights on around here. Also, if you're online, if you've got a computer or a phone or whatever, and you like band merchandise, I do. If you look at, you know, pictures of me and stuff, I tend to wear, you know, some of my favorite bands. It's cool. It's a good look. And the place to get the band merchandise is rockabilia.com. That's rockabilia.com. Now, they're a great sponsor of the show. But that's not why I'm talking about them. They have over half a million unique items. And I mean unique. This isn't the stuff you see everybody wearing at the mall. This is really, really unique stuff. And everything that they have is officially licensed from the band. So there isn't any, you know, Amazon, a little sketchy sometimes. eBay, even sketchier. Sometimes those websites, they aren't exactly above board. And some of that stuff's getting printed and the bands are getting cut out. And some of that stuff is horrible quality. I remember somebody bought me, very nice of them, they bought me this pretty sick black flag shirt and I put it in the wash and it shrunk up to my belly button. And it was obviously like not a very high quality print the print half of it came off in the wash so with rockabilia you know that's not going to happen so right now we have a great promo code going on it saves you 15 percent off your entire order right now so head over and use promo code pcls at rockabilia.com save 15 percent off go pick up something they got anti-flag shirts so check it out they got everything rockabilia.com before I lead you into this great episode with Justin, I want to remind you guys, I love hearing from you. Please get in touch. Email leadsingersyndrome at gmail.com. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Also, the Facebook page, we have a huge upheaval going on over there. I got three people helping me out. Shout out to Melissa, Julia, and Neil. And we got all kinds of discussions going on there. So I think it's a little pathetic. Like We only have like 
3,500 people liking the page, which compared to how many people actually listen to the show is very weak. So if you are on Facebook, and I'm sure you are because everybody is, head over there, like the page, and you know, we're talking about stuff. We're putting up old episodes. We're talking about current episodes. It is definitely worth it. So check it out. It is facebook.com slash leadsingersynsyn. And of course, if you don't like what you're hearing, if you don't like me, if you don't like the show, we have something for you too, my friend. We have the hate line. one 657 hate That's 1-657-666-H-A-T-E. Leave me a message. Let me have it, okay? Give me the hate and let me know either what I'm doing wrong or what I'm really doing wrong. Just how I'm fucking it up, okay? Hit me up. Either way, email, whatever you got to do, I would love to hear from you. So let's get into it and my conversation with Justin Sane of Anti-Flag. Yo, brother. Hello, is Justin there? Yeah, Shane, it's Justin. Hey, man. No, it's just funny, you know, calling you on a landline. It's like, you know, the old school thing when you <laughs> call your, you know, your friend's parents' house. It's like, um, can Justin totally, come out and play? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, man, call my, call me at my parents' house. <laughs> it's so funny how we forget those days, you know? It's, it's right, incredible. totally. Well, especially like it, it kind of takes me back to like the uh especially the old punk days because it was like you know when you were like a kid in like grade school or high school or whatever people you know you gave people your phone number and they just they knew it was your parents house but at some point that changed in your life and if you're like yeah call me my parents house you know it's like you had to (laughs) let people know well it's it's funny too you bring that up about the old punk days because you know you used to put in your demo tape you know every band would be like oh yeah call this number and ask for you know, the singer of the band was <laughs> right. in the demo tape. And it's funny, I met I met one of my best friends, to this day, my best friend Chris. He saw my band play and got our demo and just called me on the phone. I was like, hey man, I like your demo. <laughs> I was like, this isn't this number's not for that. Like this number's to like book a show for me or or something, you know? But uh it's really funny, you know. That's that's insane. That's really cool. I mean if you <laughs> If you think about it, like, yeah, you're not like, hey, yeah, if you like this music, call me and let's be friends. That's not what that was about. (laughs) No, but what a different time. You know, young people, there's no way they can believe that that was real because that that was 100% what happened. Well, totally, totally. Yeah, and just how you would find people in another city to do a show, you know, and just calling people up, like calling a phone number that somebody gave to somebody who had given it to somebody and you just call and you're like, Hey, I heard if I call this number, you guys do shows somewhere in your town. You know, I mean, right. it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen that way anymore. No. And it's so funny too. Cause you call some guy and you would, all you'd know is a name and, and typically yeah, exactly. it was like not a real name. Like the guy was always named like, I don't know, like, punk rock steve or something you know what i mean or like or rocky (laughs) or i don't know it was always some kind of name like that and then you'd just be like i don't know let's go 
get in the van. Yeah. Like, probably not going to get paid. There probably aren't going to be anyone there. But, eh, fuck it. Let's go. And that's just, that was the best. Well, Anti-Flag's probably like our first, yeah, our first U.S. tour was like three and a half months. Wow. Um, we probably only played like 19 shows. And, <laughs> it, you know, we used Maximum Rock and Roll's book, Your Own Book your own fucking life. Yeah. Um, and we just would use whatever kind of phone numbers that we, we could come across. And, you know, I think just it was, it was so much more about the experience of we got our shit together enough to get a van and to go drive across the country, you know? And so you, we, we kind of, like when we left Pittsburgh, we knew that we had all these kind of dates to fill in. Like, I think we kind of anchored the tour around probably like three or four shows that were probably thousands of miles apart. <laughs> and, and, uh, I know that one of those shows was at Gilman street. Right. So we knew we had a show at Gilman street and we probably had like a month to get to Gilman. So <laughs> amazing. It was kind of like, all right, well, here we go. So I think we went to Cleveland was like one of our first shows and probably like two or three other shows in Ohio. So we just like, you know, the first week of tour yeah. was us just going to the punk houses that we knew in Ohio, which is, you know, probably only three to five hours away from Pittsburgh, depending on, sure. you know, what city you're in. And then just picking up phone numbers along the way, you know, and a lot of times like just getting an address from somebody knowing that there was a punk house like in Tulsa and <laughs> driving to that house and knocking on the door and be like, Hey, you know, we got your, we punk rock Steve back in <laughs> Illinois, gave me your number, or gave, gave us your address. And, so that if we show up here, you might put on a basement show, you know, and they'd be like, Oh, Incredible. cool. Yeah. You guys could crash here. And then they'd fire for three days and then you'd play the show. Yeah. And that was sort of how we did our first tour. So we spent a whole lot more time just hanging out with people at punk houses than we did playing, you know, shows. What year was that and, first uh, tour? Well, that would have been around 94, 95 ish. Okay. 94, 95 ish. Pretty, pretty early in, in the life of the band. And I remember we stayed at a punk house in Toronto. Oh, really? Right on Queen Street for probably like a week and a half. <laughs> I wonder if I know the people <laughs> that, that uh, operated said punk house. There's a very good chance. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm that, sure. That's amazing. And, you know, it's always funny, right? Like, you grow up. Wherever you grow up, like I don't care if you're from Pittsburgh, Toronto, uh, anywhere in the country. Like, I mean, maybe not if you're from like San Francisco or LA or New York, but anywhere else other than that, you hear about these venues. Like, you hear about Gilman Street, you hear about CBGBs. Now, when you guys finally got out there and you got to play, you know, the legendary venue, what did you? What was going through your mind? Do you remember? Were you excited? Were you like? This place kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was like the biggest deal in my life, right. you know. And it, I think that the expectations I had, you know, for playing Gilman Street or for playing New York City were so astronomically high <laughs> that I don't see how it could have possibly lived up to the hype in my head. Exactly, I know. And and you know, and you look back on it like. What was great about Gilman was like whoever was working the show that night 
kind of made the decisions about the show. And, and, and I think that, you know, cause Gilman was a collective yeah. venue and, um, you know, it was a nonprofit run by punk kids. And, you know, I think that just what was going to happen at the show and how the show was going to be run, um, it was pretty much going to go like any basement punk show. I think everybody understood that, but just like the way that the, the show would be settled at the end of the night and the way the lineup would, would run, you know, where you would end up playing and all those kind of things. I think it was probably pretty inconsistent <laughs> because <laughs> different people were kind of calling the shots, you know, at totally. different times. And, and it's just kind of funny. Like when you think about like, just think of like when you're learning how to do something and all the mistakes that you make just purely out of inexperience or uh, naivety, you know, and I feel like that's what we ran into when we played Gilman. Like I just don't, in a lot of ways, I think that the people who were running it didn't hundred percent really know what they were doing. And as a result of that, you know, to me, the show felt like a real letdown. Right. Cause I really thought we were going to roll into this place and this was like the punk Mecca venue to me. And we yeah. were going to roll in and everything was going to be super egalitarian. Everything was going to run super smooth and everybody was going to be super cool to each other. And it, it kind of wasn't like that. Like, you know, kind of some of the people who were doing the show felt, it, it felt like they felt indifferent towards us. And, um, it, 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 it didn't have that welcoming vibe to me. And, but I look back on it now and I, I understand it now. I mean, sure. I think probably the people who were doing it were probably pretty overwhelmed. There was a lot of show. There were so many bands coming through and I think that there was such high expectations, you know? Um, and ultimately they were just young kids trying to like make this, this boat float. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, so in a way it was kind of a letdown, you know, but we still made some really great friends there. I think, um, we ended up, our first show at Gilman was with AFI, which is pretty crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, especially because yeah. they were like a local band at that, you know. Well, they weren't <laughs> they a local were a band. Local they graduated band, yeah. to all the stuff, but that's like, you know, they're in their neck of the woods, so that's crazy. Totally, yeah. And, and, you know, and of course for us, like, we were gobsmacked. We were like, who the hell is this band, you know? Like, you know, they just, they were great probably like from day one you know? Right. And you could tell that Davey was special, you know, like he, he just had a presence and just had something about him. And the, the, that scene, that hardcore East Bay hardcore scene was so positive, you know, and it, it was so positive. So, you know, I, I think like for me, it was kind of like a really mixed thing where, um, I didn't, I didn't like uh, my experience of just playing there with the anti bike was sort of like, it was kind of a letdown, but then watching AFI play, it was like, holy shit, this is for real. Like, this is what the East Bay is about, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, and that, that was really cool. But yeah. And like New York city for me, like first time I played in New York city, we played at ABC, no Rio, which is still there. It's in the lower East side. Yeah. At that time, like it was, you know, that, that, that property, that whole area, I mean, it's completely gentrified like the rest yeah. of New York city sure. and it's, it's crazy, you know, like property values and just 
everything that is in that area is outrageously expensive. At the time we played there, there was a, like, I think there was a liquor store on the street where we played and, and that was it. I mean, it was, it was rough. Yeah. And, um, the, you know, the pretty much like the punk sort of like ran the neighborhood. Um, and, um, it, it, again, like I was like, wow, this is New York city. Like, this is not what I thought this was going to be. And, um, well, I mean, so it took a little while to kind of meet the right people in New York and realize that there was a lot of really cool things happening in New York at sea squat and those kind of places, but we didn't meet them right off the first time we played. Well, I remember going to CBGB's for the first time and I was extremely disappointed too. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just a big long room. They were just like, the staff was such dicks to us and (laughs) it was so run down and nothing worked. And like, I remember we were like, we had some power issue and like Josh, like he couldn't get his guitar like working or something. So he's just there like trying to get the guitar working. And the sound guy was like, basically told him to shut the fuck up. Like until doors, (laughs) you know, like, like we were like, come on, man. Like. We're excited yeah. to play you this venue, and you're just like being a total dick, you know. And like the and place the, was and so the Ramones right. aren't here. Where are the Ramones at? <laughs> but I mean, shit. Like every everyone that like grew up, you know, our generation and knew about punk rock, like knew about that venue. Didn't matter where you were from. Yeah. And you yeah. heard these amazing stories about these amazing shows, you know. And yeah, then you get yeah. there, and you're like, oh, okay, this is it. Right. Well, whatever, right. you know. So well, we we actually were so unimpressed by CBGBs that we never played CBGBs ever. So you, wow. yeah, we never did. We Pat and I went to a show. Pat's our drummer, and he, he and I went to a show at CBGBs like pretty early on when we got into punk because for the reason that you just said, like it was just such a legendary place. And um, you know, we went to the show and we were just like, man, this this place fucking sucks, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and so we were never that um, excited to play it. And, you know, ABC No Rio was like where the political punk scene was happening, right. you know, and that's what we were in touch with. And that, that's what we were excited about. So um, and that place, you know, is almost like a squat and, you know, it was totally volunteer run. And, you know, our, our friends played there a lot um, at the time uh, in Pittsburgh the probably like the most popular band and and probably like the the most political band, the most activist band really to ever come out of Pittsburgh was this band Os Rotten, which people right. may or may not be aware of. Yeah. And they were just like a really incredible uh punk like hardcore punk band. Sure. And um they you know they they were in really close contact with the people at ABC No Rio and um so they kinda hyped us to play ABC over CBGBs. And so we just ended up going, uh, in that direction. And ABC on Rio ended up, you know, I think like our first time it was kind of a letdown, but over time, like, you know, when we met people in New York who were really, you know, involved with like the activist scene and that kind of thing, then it really became special to us. And, you know, playing at ABC became like, you know, that, that definitely became like a home away from home for us. And it was cool because, New York was like a six and a half, seven hour drive. So we could go up there and play and be home like and do the whole thing in like 18 hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, starting from the beginning, I mean, you talk about your, you know, 
your interest in in political punk and that side of punk rock. Um, for you, you know, growing up as a kid and stuff, how did you get into that? You know, into that stuff, into that music, and and also into the politics. Well, um, I so I grew up in an intensely Irish family. Um, my my father is from Ireland, and both of my mother's parents are from Ireland, and so just my family it was just about everything Irish, you know. And um, of course, like you know, the politics in Ireland at that time, especially with the separation between the north and the south of Ireland, yep. um, you know, it, it was a much hotter uh, area than it than it is today. You know, I mean, there was you know, there, there was a lot of violence and, um, and my parents were Catholic. So they, you know, they, for them, um, the division in Ireland between North and South was a civil rights issue because Catholics were discriminated against. And, um, so, um, so my parents were, were deeply involved in that issue. Um, and as a result of that, they were, you know, they were sympathetic to the civil rights issues in America. Like they came here, you know, my dad always used to say, uh, you know, the, the Catholics in Ireland are the blacks of America, you know? So my dad immediately felt a kinship with African Americans in the United States. And both of my parents really felt like it was important to fight for civil rights and just equality for people, regardless of, you know, the color of their skin or their religion, uh, their, their gender, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just because of the experiences that their families had gone through in Ireland. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, as it turns out, like, you know, my mom left the Catholic church, uh, as she got more involved in feminism and, you know, decided that the Catholic church was, was too sexist and um and too limiting to women and my father really he 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 stayed in the church but he he um he really supported that point of view and um you know i I think that a lot of things about the catholic religion he he walked away from but it he never quit going to church though you know i don't know if that's just because if you're you're irish catholic like you just can't escape you know <laughs> um especially like his generation right but, there's a social social you know stigma too i guess of of that right of not supporting that anymore right when you have friends and and other families and stuff right i mean that's that's a big part well of it was hard like when my mom left the catholic church like her whole family like yeah that was like complete uh that, that was a complete shock to people, you know, like, especially like her sister was a nun, you know, like my dad has two sisters who are nuns. Wow. So yeah, I mean to leave the Catholic church, like that was a really big deal. Like you were going to burn in hell, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that was a really hard thing for the family to accept. Um, but, but as a result, you know, like, uh, I guess what I'm just trying to get at is that ultimately my parents, they, they're not really religious people and they, they kind of, they could see the flaws in religion and really they just came to have this philosophy based in humanity and equality for people, regardless of who they were. And so, you know, that just, that rubbed off on me in a big way. Um, and, and ultimately like my parents really, 
you know, worked towards, you know, for, for issues of peace in Ireland too, you know, like, um, there was no, my parents didn't look down on you because you were Protestant and, and they'd grown up Catholic. Like, and, and some people of that generation did, you know, and, and people still do in Ireland, you know? Um, but it's, you know, so as far as, you know, any, they saw anything that was, you know, kind of an artificial construct, um, of separation as something that, that should that should be fought against. So I just grew up in that environment. You know, my parents opened up a vegetarian restaurant. They, um, oh, cool. they were really like far ahead in the issue and uh, animal rights issues and wow. on issues of like organic farming. My mom was an organic farmer, which is crazy. Right. For back um, then, it's very crazy. It's yeah. Like you, you totally know. insane. Like, yeah. yeah, people had never even heard of that term at all. Totally. You know, so my parents just ended up being these really, really progressive people. And I just grew up in that environment, like around activists all the time, you know, like people, anti-nuclear people, civil rights activists, uh, anti-war people, and environmentalists. So it just kind of made sense that, um, and, and, and I guess the other thing, too, is just that Irish music, which I was around all the time, because um, my parents... When we were kids, we all had to learn an instrument. They wanted us oh, all okay. to be musicians. I was going to ask you so, if your parents were musical. That was my next question. Yeah, you know, they're musical themselves, but they didn't play anything. And I think they both just grew up too poor to have the opportunity to play anything. Like, my dad left Ireland at 16 to work, you know. And, uh, and my mom's family was a similar situation. Um, but they wanted their kids to play and they loved music and they loved dancing. Like they were killer, like ballroom dancers, you know? (laughs) And, uh, so, um, we all played. So when I was a kid and I had eight brothers and sisters, I'm the youngest of nine. Oh my goodness. So yeah, that's the Catholicism thing. Like that no birth (laughs) control. So I was the last one, like, my mom figured it out after me. She was like, fuck this, you know, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. But it took her nine kids to figure it out. Um, but yeah, so when I was a young kid, my brothers and sisters had an Irish folk band. And um, I kind of like grew up in like Dropkick Murphys or Flogging Molly. Like, I kind of like that was, that was my upbringing as a little kid. I was around Irish folk music. <laughs> And, um, and that music is rebel music, you know, and, um, all the songs are, are songs about being oppressed. Right. So, um, all of, I had all those influences on me growing up. And so it just made sense that when I came across political punk, I was like, oh yeah, like I, I get this, I relate to this. And, um, and, and, you know, it was just, it was the most exciting thing going, you sure. know, it was, the, the music was really just uh, it was, it was fast and, and angry and exciting and it was about something. So I just think that for me, it was just a natural progression into it. Also, my oldest brother had been backpacking around Europe and, and cause there's 16 years between my oldest brother and I, and, uh, he was backpacking around Europe in the late seventies. So he came home with all these punk rock records, like the sex pistols and the clash and the Ramones. And, right. you know, he, he was in Europe at the time when punk was just exploding in Europe. So you got a little, yeah. So you got a little preview of, of what was to come, I guess, in some ways. Yeah. And it just ended up being the music I just grew up around. Totally. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, oh my God, uh, so man, so much to talk about. Um, it, it's fun. Do you know how many shows you've played? How many shows Nancy Flag has played? Do you have any idea? You know, Chris Head, our guitar player, kind of keeps track of that. Yeah. And, but, but I have absolutely no idea. Um, right now, I wouldn't be surprised if we're doing if we did 200 shows last year. Wow. Which, which is a lot of fucking shows. It's crazy, yeah, they, to to be able to be a band as long as you guys have the age you guys are getting to, and still be able to do. I mean, 200 shows a year. That's, I mean, you know, people say, oh, well, there's 365 days a year, but I mean, there's travel days, there's days off, there's all that stuff. That's a lot of time on the road. Yeah, it, it's an incredible amount of time on the road, you know, and, and I think last year is a bit of an anomaly because we did Warp Tour last year, or we did four weeks of Warp Tour, something like that, yep. and we haven't done that in a long time, but yeah, I mean, when you take into travel, when you take travel days into consideration, and then any days off, and then you realize that you you weren't home all year, uh, <laughs> and it's... You know, I mean, obviously we love to do it, which is why we're all doing it. Um, I would say the last year was a bit of an anomaly, like as far as I don't want to do that many shows every year. <laughs> and, um, and, and again, you know, Warp Tour was kind of the main reason that we ended up going in that direction. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, in a way, like... I can't even tell you why we didn't have any shows. Like, what are we doing? You know, like, uh, and, and I don't, you know, I, I don't think that like most bands that we're good friends with who have been doing this for 10 years or longer are still doing that many shows. So I don't know what that says about anti-flag. I mean, I think that we've always been a band that would go play anywhere and we do any show like, Offer us a show. It's hard for us to say no. Like we've right. always been terrible at saying no. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's funny. Like when, when tour dates get offered to us and we always have like this internal struggle because our drummer, Pat knows that we can't say no to anything. So when tour dates come in, he always like, if it's at the beginning of the year, we're building the year out. He always wants to, to turn dates down. And we're always like, no, man, it's cool. We'll do these shows. Then we'll take like, you know, a couple months off. And he's like, no, we won't. You know, like, I know we won't. And we're like, no, we will. And then he's totally right. And more dates come in and we always take them. And yeah, I don't know. Like, I think that grew out of early in the band when you are offered an opportunity to do something that you've never done before. Yeah. It's almost impossible to say no. Like I'm yeah. sure you experienced that, right? Like, Oh, totally. W- well, with your band. I remember I had, I had Keith Buckley from, from every time I die on the show. And he said that the, the key to their like success was that they were completely crazy, would do anything. It's like, Oh yeah. Drive to California to play one show for a hundred dollars. Sure. Let's do yeah. it. 
You know what I yeah. mean? Let's go drive in yep. the van for four days. Like, it'll be fun. And having that mentality totally. is what separates, you know, I think what separates a lot of bands. And, like, because, you know, you say, okay, play 200, year, 200 shows a year. That might have been a bad idea. Well, guess what? That's a lot of people that saw your band play. And if you guys put on a good show, which you always do, they're going to come back. They're going to see you again. And that's going to only help your band, you know, stay relevant as you guys have for, for whatever it is now, almost, what, 25 fucking years? It's crazy. Yeah, we're closing in on that, which is, which is crazy. Yeah. And I, but no, I think that, like, totally what he was saying, like, I, I, I agree, like, there's certain people that kind of have that mentality, uh, you know, who start bands, and I think those are the bands that end up playing forever, you know, yeah. like, some bands after, they're like, dude, we've been doing this for 10 years, let's, it's long enough, we're done. But then, you know, there, there are people who just never stop. And I think that that's that group of people, you, you know. You and, guys, I mean, you guys have become legends. I mean, I mean, Anti-Flag is now a legendary punk band. And, I, and it's probably freaks you out for me to say that, as, you know, as the front man of a legendary punk band now, because I'm sure you've just been going about your business for, you know, two decades and you haven't really stopped and smelled the roses and, and thought about, you know, the fact that, when all is said and done, your band will be cemented in with all the other legendary punk bands that everyone knows. Yeah, it's a strange thing because I, I had like, you know, I've had this conversation before with people and it, you know, I remember we, we did in 1997, we did the UK subs 20-year reunion tour across the US. <laughs> that was like one of the first big like, shows that you know tours that we did like a tour that was actually booked by a booking agent and sure. playing with a band that people knew um and you know so, and supporting that band was crazy because for me that that was what a huge influence on me was, was the uk subs that was like a band that i loved you know and um so i, I remember when anti-flag was coming up on 20 years <clears throat> and just thinking about that, you know, and the relevance of that and just kind of mirroring it with, with the UK subs. And when we did that tour and just as a fan of the UK subs, what was my attitude towards that band and how did I look at them? You know, and I, and I did look at them as a legendary band and they were one of the, the first punk bands and 20 years later, they were still out doing it. And like, I was really blown away when we, we got on tour with them because they were still great. Like they, yeah. they still brought it and they, they could rock, you know, like every night, like it was amazing. Like the, I still, to this day would say like out of my top shows and top bands that I've ever seen, they were one of the bands. Like that was a band that they, some nights like their, their live show was unbelievable. And, um, and it was 20 years later. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of thought about that in terms of anti-flag. And, like, I know, like, when people go to see us, it's a, it's a different thing now, you know? Like, the, it's a known quantity. And uh, at least as far as the, the name recognition goes. Right. Um, and it's, it's people probably <clears throat> come at it and see it as a different thing than when you're a newer band and you've been, you know, just doing it for five or six years and it still feels like, Oh wow, this is really new. And it's something I'm not sure exactly what this is or what to expect when I see this band. I think that people probably see anti-flag in a different way, but, but that's cool. You know, it's exciting. It, it always like, 
amazes me that people still come out and see us. And uh, well, you guys and, always and, put on a great show. I mean, I mean, I, I wonder. You know, you talk about the UK subs and seeing them on their you know twenty year anniversary and them still putting on a good show. Does that ever cross your mind when you guys are like, well, we're you know in, in over twenty years now, they could do it. We have to do it. Like, does that put pressure on yourself? Every time, I mean, some of the things you guys do, like, you know, bring in the drum kit, you know, Pat brings the drum kit in the crowd, and you guys still, like, do this kind of shit that's so rad and intense and not easy. It's not easy to pull that off yeah. every day, 200 days a year, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, it's amazing. I, I, kind of feel, I kind of feel like if, when we, if we hit a wall where we can't physically do like we can't put on a performance at a certain physical level. I'm not so sure that I would want to keep doing it, you know? And, and I do think about that because that's part of what I enjoy about playing live. I don't think I'd ever really enjoy it in the same way as if I just get up there and stand, stand in one spot and play the songs, yeah. you know, that there weren't songs that were meant to be performed that way. And, you know, they weren't written to be performed that way. And, and I love the fact that, yeah, we're all, you know, knock on wood, like we're all physically fit still and we, we yeah. can still do it. And who, who the hell knows? I mean, we might be able to do it the way we do it now forever. I mean, it, and I, I guess it kind of comes down to a, a lot of luck and, uh, and, and taking care of yourself, you do know, you want to do it forever. I mean, like given the opportunity, do you want to do it forever? Like, is there, are there, are there other things you know, in your life that you, you want to do? Cause I mean, it must be like, you're just so used to doing this year in, year out. Yeah. Like, is there a fear yeah, that, that you the, can't do anything I, I else? I will say it's like the place where I'm most comfortable, you know, like it's strange. Like some nights, like, you know, cause uh, you know, depending on a tour, like you might be in a bus, you might be in a van, mm-hmm. you might be driving across Slovenia in like some gypsy's car. You, know? sure. like, <laughs> you don't, you don't fucking know, but um, and, but there are nights where I can like, uh, and I thought about this where I'm, because it's so ridiculous that, you know, I've done like 48 hours of travel to some part of the world. Yeah. And then we get to wherever we're going in and we go up and perform like, so you're, you're just worn out. Like, yeah. you know, you're, you're worn down to the bone and then you have to go up and play but then it's all over, and I've, I I can I remember like really distinctly one time going to Europe. It was <clears throat> like twenty four hours of travel, and it was crazy. And then we played, I think, Rose Rock. Yeah. The we were supposed supposed to get to a bus, so it was like you're gonna do all this crazy travel. You have to play the same day you get there, but then you're going to be on a bus that night. So you're going to get some rest and it's going to be great. Right. And, and, and so we we're like, yeah, we can do that. It's crazy, but we'll do it. And the bus broke down. Oh, we course. had a, another big show the next day and we didn't want to miss it. So we got a van or a box truck or something like that. And I remember just being so exhausted and literally laying on top of equipment <laughs> in a van, like and with the ceiling about like, three or four inches from my nose and just laying there and feeling like I was exactly where I wanted to be. <laughs> like <laughs> I, it, it felt so familiar 
and so comfortable, I guess because I've done it so long <laughs> that I was just like, man, this is, this should, I, it, it's, there's something fucked up with me that right. I feel really good about this right now. That's scary. Yeah. And, that, that must scare you when you realize that that's, just, you're more comfortable just, like that than you are any, you know, literally what any normal person would, you know, <laughs> right. qualify as nobody else. No. Yeah. Nobody else would be like, Oh man, this is where I feel myself, you know? So, so and uh, that said, like, I guess, yeah, this is the world I've, I've created for myself and this is what I know. And, and, um, so I don't know that I'll ever get tired of it. You know, I don't know right. that I'll, I'll never want to play. I mean, I, I think that like most people, you talk to them in bands and they say like every time they go to a show, and they're watching their friends band, you know, like I could be watching your band and be like, Oh, these guys are fucking killing it. And I love this, but I still wish I was one of you guys up there doing yeah. the performance. <laughs> like it never gets old. It's just something that, that I love to do. So I have a feeling that it's something that I'll always want to do if I can. Totally. Totally. Um, one thing about you guys that I think is very interesting is that, you know, obviously you're a punk band, political punk band, and you care about, the politics of the world, the politics of music and stuff, but you guys have really worn a lot of hats in terms of the industry. You guys have been on small labels, you know, small indie labels, big indie labels, major labels. You've done, you know, you have your own label, which you put out your own record, you know, records of other bands, and now you're managed by the Madden Brothers. So you guys yeah. have this very, very uh, ever-changing sort of way that you guys project yourself you know based on what label you're on and based on how you do your business and i'm just kind of wondering how that has been for you over your career kind of like always just changing the approach hmm. yeah i mean i i think that at some point you know in the beginning it's probably just like any band where you just you just want to be a band more than anything so you're just kind of doing what you have to do to go through the steps to to play music and have people hear it and have people yeah. be excited about it. And at that point, you're probably willing to work with anybody sure. as long as they're, as long as they're cool people and they're good to you. Um, and then, you know, it, it's always just for, for anti-flag after we kind of made that, that step and that transition. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to think it through. Like yeah, yeah. early on, it was definitely the DIY thing for us, you know, like sure. making cassette demos, you know, selling them for like two bucks at a show. Um, <laughs> and then we, we met, uh, Nikki Garrett who, and, uh, who was the guitar player for the UK subs who had a record label called new road archives. And he put out die for the government. Right. And that was what led to that UK subs tour. Okay. Um, and then, you know, from, from there, it kind of was just a natural progression of who we met and who we became friends with. And from there out, for a really long time, the only people we worked with were friends. So it was, and, and I think that that is what's really cool about punk and hip-hop and, you know, a, a couple scenes like that where it's just like, you know, people get to know you because of your music and you realize, like, you have this commonality with each other. And it's just so natural to end up working together. So yeah. we met great, we met Greg Ross at go-kart. Um, 
and we did our second record, New Kind of Army, with him. Um, about that same time, we met Fat Mike, um, and we met him through the Bouncing Souls, who who we were really good friends with. Who um, they were like a couple years older than us, and just real mentors to us, and just helped us out with a, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and you know, not to go totally off off subject, but just like one thing to kind of that I think is just really interesting when I look back on the history of Anti-Vag and I think most bands is that, you know, and, 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 you know, you were saying about like Heath Buckley, like, um, just saying that they would go do anything. Like we met the bouncing souls in Reno because we got an offer to do one show in California <laughs> and we knew if we went out and played it, we could like string together a couple other shows. Yeah. So we thought, fuck it, we're going to do a week in California and then come home. It was kind of like that. And, um, we just ended up, we ended up one of the shows that we played was in Reno and it was with the bouncing souls. And so just really early in the band, like within a year of having the band, probably we met the bouncing souls and through meeting the bouncing souls, it just led to a lot of really good things for us, including, um, meeting a booking agent who we had for a really long time, Margie from do it booking. Um, and, um, but just the idea that, like, if you are out there doing it, that's when things come to you. And because you, that's how you make your relationships. That's how you meet yeah. people. And, you know, it's, I don't think that you can ever play enough shows, especially when you're a young band, because you just never know who you're going to meet, like that yeah, friendship totally. that you're going to have. And, um, and Bouncing Souls was was a band that opened so many doors to us and introduced us to so many people. And that brings us back to where, to where I was going was when we met fat Mike through the souls. Um, and then we did a couple records on fat. Yeah. Um, and then just, you know, it was interesting because rise against had signed to a major and it, and it, there was a couple other bands that we were friends with who had signed to majors. Some of it, like H2O and, um, yeah. And, uh, save the day. There was like a, a good, a couple of bands that we'd done a fair amount of touring with. Um, and we had seen it go pretty bad for most of our <laughs> friends, you know, yeah. <laughs> like they did a record and they got dropped, you know, sure. and then they had this, then you have the stigma of being a band that signed to a major. Yeah. Um, we were really happy on fat. Like it, to me, like fat was such a cool label to be on because of everything that surrounded fat, like fat Mike and his wife, Aaron at the time, like Mm -hmm. she ran the label pretty much. Mike kind of was a creative person, went out and met bands and brought bands in, but Aaron really managed it in a lot of ways and made it, made it tick. Um, and just seeing what the, what they were doing at fat, um, and understanding like, wow, this is just a family here. And you know, we found where we belong. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of majors come to us during that time and we just had no interest at all. Like, and, and as far as I was concerned, I was like, fuck it, we're home. Like this is yep. where if I could make up what, where I want my band to live, this is what I would make up. And, um, but. really, just, <laughs> yeah, but, 
Yeah, what changed it really was was the Gulf War. You know, it was we did the terror state record at the beginning of the Gulf War, yeah. and it was a big it was a big record in the punk scene. And Turncoat was a really big song, um, but we just felt like we hit a glass ceiling. You know, um, we weren't taken seriously in the the media venues that we wanted to be taken seriously, right. be- because we were a punk band. And we were a little punk band. We were a, li- we were a little punk band on an indie label. And um, we'd seen Good Riddance run fat, and they were friends of ours. And I really took notice of Good Riddance and what happened with Good Riddance because they were about three or four years ahead of us as far as, I would say, like in the realm of being able to grow your band and yeah. grow your audience. And what I saw happen to Good Riddance, and I thought they were like an amazing band, was that they just hit this point, and I could tell they were never going to be any bigger. And I could tell that their reach was never going to be more impactful than it was. And I, I always felt like that was a real shame, because Good Riddance, like, you know, they were the most political band of that, like, in yeah. terms of, you know, the the messaging that they were bringing was incredible, like, you know, the song topics that they, they were bringing up, like I, um, they were teaching me about things that I'd never heard of. And I was right. like, wow, you know, like people should know about this band. And, um, so as There's a result of that, but what's, what's, well, propaganda, that's but, true. Uh, I, I forgot about propaganda. I forgot I mean, holy shit. Like that, that band was incredible. And they, were not, of all they of were not fat for very long. They only did, you know, a couple records, but yeah, yeah, and we didn't have a lot of interaction with Propagandi. So Good Riddance was a band that we were yep. interacting with a lot. Sure. Propagandi were kind of off doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at least they weren't in our realm, you know, that, yep. that we were running around in. So I just kind of felt like the major label opportunities were there. I didn't think that we were going to have any more of an impact than we were already having on Fat. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and so we just jumped at it. You know, it was, we met some really great people at RCA records that we really liked. And, and that was one thing about the answer. Like, like we always, we've always worked with people that we got to know pretty well. We never rushed into anything. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we felt like with this group at, at RCA, they, they were like minded. What was kind of interesting. Cause like, you know, I think everybody thinks about major labels and they're always like, it's just this cool big machine and, you know, it's run by Darth Vader. And, <laughs> but, but the reality is like people who are into music are generally pretty cool people, you know? Yeah. And, and they, you know, at some point, a lot of them grow up and get jobs, you know? Um, luckily some of them grow up and get jobs at record labels and, and, you know, work with really cool artists and, you know, have an agenda to put out things that matter to them. And, and we felt like we found those people at RCA. So, um, so at that point it just made sense for us to go to RCA. The, at that point, like we were really, really hopeful to have an impact with what we had to say, you know? And I, I think that we achieved that goal to a good degree you know, like at the time we released um, for Blood and Empire, 
there wasn't any political music out in the mainstream. Right. And um, nobody was kind of making a statement against, um, nobody was making a statement against, um, against, uh, you know, the, the Iraq war. There just wasn't a yeah. statement against it in the mainstream. And, but right about the time our record came out, Green Day put out American Idiot. Yeah, so sure. Green Day sort of, they really stole our thunder as far as like <laughs> <laughs> American Idiot came out right before our record. And it was like, oh shit, okay, somebody's <laughs> saying it. And it's somebody that people are going to listen to a lot more than they're going to listen to Anti-Flag. So I think the, the, the record yeah, they, they made They brought you on impact. some shows though, right? They put you on some shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, it, they were nice about it. Oh God. Yeah. They, they were great, you know? And, um, but it didn't, I don't think that we had the impact that we hoped to have, but it, but we still, I think we made an impact on, I, I know we made an impact on certain people's lives and, and that that's great, you know? And then, you know, when you, when we left the major, the record industry, if you want to call it that, like, it, obviously that really started to change, you know, with downloading and CD burning. And, and so since then, like, yeah, I mean, to come back to the original point of your question, We've had to wear a lot of different hats. Yeah. And we've we've had to um if we want to keep doing this, like we just had to figure out how to do it. And yes. um yeah, you know, I mean and it's it's uh, clearly it it's changed a lot and uh you know, the model for being able to keep doing it is has really changed, but um we and we have done it with a couple of different labels and trying to figure out how to do it. But I think ultimately the we've been able to never do anything that we didn't want to do. And we've never had to work with somebody and we never chose to work with somebody that we didn't want to work with. And I think that that has a lot to do with the longevity of a band because I've, I've seen people make choices about people that they were going to work with and they weren't excited about it. And uh, I've, uh, you know, and, and that was something I saw peop- some people do very early on in being a band. And I realized, I was like, wow, that's, this is, that's not going to turn out well for them. Right. And it and didn't. It so that was, that was a philosophy that, that we always kind of hung on to. And I, I think as a result of that, even when things didn't always go perfect with a label or, or whatever we were doing, it, it softened the blow enough that we could, we could work through it and we could figure it out. I've heard something about this punk bunker that you guys own or run or something in Pittsburgh. What, what is this about? Wait, give me that again. The punk bunker. I no, no, we're, we're not involved in that. There's no punk bunker. Not that, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> somebody, had, uh, somebody asked me to ask you this about wanting to know about yeah. the, the Pittsburgh punk no. bunker where you guys conduct your business out of or whatever. I got some pies in there. Okay, come on. Oh no, we got some time on those. No, they just went in a short time ago. Sorry, my dad's asking me a question. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about pies? You baking pies? No, you know we do. We do have. Um, we do have an office. And, um, everybody seems to call it something different. Um, and it, and it could be construed as kind of a bunker, you know, it's like in this, uh, old dilapidated rust belt, uh, like warehouse district. Yeah. And so it feels, it's more like, uh, walking dead, 
uh, vibe okay. to it than, than Survival Bunker. Um, there are nights, because we have a recording studio there, and there are nights when I walk out, I'm like recording like deep into the night, and I'll be alone, and I come outside, and it's, it's pitch dark, and I'm just like, man... If if zombies are ever going to get me or or something <laughs> evil, this is this is where it's going to happen. But um, yeah, no punk bunker to speak of. Okay, okay, good to know. Good for clarification. Um, yep. new record is out now. American Fall, uh, great record, and and a little bit of a different record for you on some some songs. Um, you know, Digital Blackout. That song almost has like a Rage Against the Machine meets Refused vibe, which is like definitely yeah. something that I. You know, I don't think you could have seen yourself doing, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and also you worked with Benji Madden of Good Charlotte, you know, co-producing the record. How, how did all this come together? And, um, and, and you know, and, and what's kind of driving you now with, with uh, creatively with, with, the, with the band? Well, you know, it's funny, like Digital Blackout to me actually harkens back to a Rage Against the Machine influence song from our second record on Fat, okay, uh, which is called Underground Rec- uh, Underground Network, yeah, and the, the the song on Underground Network is called uh, Culture Revolution, and that was definitely like a Rage Against the Machine refused influence kind of song, and I feel like Digital Blackout um, is kind of like it references back to that song musically, you know? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Only at this point in our career, I think that there's other things that influenced it. Like I, I feel, I always think about like the chorus. To me, it feels like an Alexis on Fire song. Okay. Uh, and uh, you know, like at that time in my life, I don't even know. I, I hadn't heard Alexis on Fire, and Alexis on Fire probably weren't even a band at that time. <laughs> um, they were, they, but, maybe um, they were, but they were, yeah, yeah, they were a little kid band if they were. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think though that you know, like with Digital Blackout, it's a song that we can do much more polished in a way, um, and I just think it's just a much better song <laughs> sure, <laughs> than totally. than than the song I'm referencing um, from our past. Um, but we were a band that was always influenced by like a real diverse uh, like uh, array of music. You know, it. it and like and and, and Rage Against the Machine was definitely one of those bands, you know. But like, I listened to, I I wasn't like as interested as having punk be put into a box as like, you know, maybe some other people were. Like I remember like when Antifa was starting out, like we had friends that were like, we're gonna sound like the Ramones, you know, and that's what they sounded like, and that was cool. That's what they wanted to do. We we had like. We, we were interested in, in Ramones and the Sex Pistols and the Clash and bands like that, but we were also influenced by, like, Sonic Youth and Big Black mm-hmm. and, like, industrial bands. And, um, you know, what at the time was, like, considered indie music was basically, like, rock bands on independent labels like Sub Pop and SST. Yeah. And, and so... Um, so in that respect, like, I, and I don't think that's really ever left the band, you know, where we've always felt like, like, I think like on an anti-flag record, you can hear two songs that, you know, you wonder how those songs live in the same universe and how they're played by the same band. And, uh, somehow it works, but, um, 
yeah, we, we kind of always sort of strayed from, I guess, what some people would call like the traditional punk box. Right. And, well, you brought, and, you know, you've brought in some people like, I, you know, I mentioned you brought in Benji, Benji Madden. Yeah, Benji, yeah. And, and also, though, I mean, you worked with Tom Morello, yeah, you know, yeah. before too. I mean, you're talking about two guys that are obviously from very different spectrums um, yeah. of rock music, uh, but, yeah. but both guys that know know what the hell they're doing. Um, what was yeah. it like working with both of them, and, and how were they different? Well, um, yeah, and you know, I mean, again, you know, that just kind of comes, I think meeting like that array of people, it really does come down to just being out in the road and, and doing it, you know. Um, Tom Morello came across our record, New Kind of Army, when he was looking for bands to put on the Rage Against the Machine right. Battle of Los Angeles tour. Yeah. And um, what's pretty funny about that is that he, you know, he looked at the, the record cover and he listened to the record and he looked at the lyrics and he, you know, he, he was like, oh, I'm probably kindred spirits with these guys. Uh, <laughs> but he could not contact us because we didn't, you know, he could like, it's sort of like what you were talking about before. Like it's really hard to, to find a way to contact people uh, back in the old days. So it's four, one, two, ask for Justin. Exactly. There you go. But we didn't include on any of our releases. We hadn't thought to include like a booking contact or anything like that. So Tom Morello had to do like some sleuthing, but he, he, he finally did track us down to our record label. Um, but Tom, um, you know, he just ended up being like a real guiding force for us as, as far as like, um, he definitely helped us up our game sonically. Um, he ended up being an executive producer on the terror state and, you know, just kind of, you know, talked to us about, pre-production that was something that we'd never really done before um we always just kind of wrote our songs in our practice space and went and recorded them and and tom's like you know be good to like listen back to these songs and work on them and make them better (laughs) 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 and uh and 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 i think for me what i've seen with tom tom definitely opened up the possibility to me that you know the impossible can happen like, and I've been with Tom, especially at things like, you know, some kind of protest rally where it just looks like the police are going to shut it down and, or it just looks like if there's supposed to be a performance, it, it's just not going to happen. And some way Tom Morello made it happen. Right. And Tom Morello just doesn't give up. And, um, he, he really taught us that, you know, uh, he, he showed us is like, man, like, I know this looks impossible, but we're going to find a way. And, um, you know, that, so just being in Tom's presence, seeing how Tom conducts himself, the fact that Tom is so humble. I mean, Tom is uh, one of the most famous guitar players in rock and roll history. Um, and, and the way he conducts himself with everybody is, is really incredible. I mean, he's really humble. He, he treats people, he gives everybody, you know, their, their time. He, he, um, he's just a friendly person. Uh, he never, uh, you know, Tom just never forgot where he came from. And, uh, 
And and that was something that I think anti flag had, to be honest with you. Like, you know, yeah. and, and so we just we clicked with that. You know, the idea of like acting like a rock star or something like that, that just never sat well with me. It was never I was never interested in that. No. Um and it was cool though to be around somebody of 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 Tom's stature who could act like a rock star and could get away with it and just be an asshole if he wanted to be. But to see that just because you, you get big doesn't mean that you have to, to be a jag off. <laughs> and uh, so that, that helped me feel a little more comfortable about, about growing as a band, you know, uh, being around Tom in that way. And, and you know, like, and, and again, just because we're all playing, we ran into Tom, we ran into Benji and Good Charlotte over the years. Um, Benji is somebody who... I really can't say enough good things about um, Benji does things for people that he absolutely just doesn't have to do. Right. But he sees a, an opportunity where somebody is doing something that Benji thinks is worthwhile or, um, or Benji sees somebody that he thinks is a good person who deserves a hand up and he just steps in. You know, and with um, and, and the, with no gain. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. Like he's not going to get anything out of it. And so I, I think that we we connected with Benji in that way, where we Benji's not like this overtly political person. Although I think that a lot of our politics are similar, mm -hmm. but where we really connected was in this idea that we believe in helping people out, you know, yeah. and, and Benji, that's where he's always really impressed me and, um, him, him and his brother and, and everybody Im involved with them. Like they have MDD management and everybody who they have around them is really good people. Um, so with Benji, you know, it was just us talking about like, Hey, we're going to be making this record and, you know, he, we, we just were in contact and he was like, well, you know, let me, how can I help you guys? You know, like, dude, why don't you guys come out to LA and just, why don't you rock in our studio, get away from Pittsburgh, get away from it all, you know? And cool. it, it wasn't like, we didn't really even have like a solid relationship where they were managing us a hundred percent or anything like that. Um, it was just that we'd been in touch and we're talking about what we were trying to achieve. And he was just throwing out like ideas to us like, well, you know, maybe I can be helpful to you guys. So, awesome. um, yeah, so we were, we were writing in his studio and recording there and he would come in, you know, and he'd listen to what we were doing and he'd be like, Oh yeah. Like, that's really cool. I hear that going in this direction. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And then he'd leave. <laughs> and, and we'd be like, Holy shit. You know what? Like, that's a cool idea. And, and, and Benj did that on so many songs on the record. And I think that's where Benji's strengths are. I mean, Benji sees what people need and he finds a way to get it for them. And he, and, and, you know, musically he can see where a song's headed and help push it in that direction. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, at some point it was just like, well, you've clearly produced our record, even though <laughs> you're, you're not 
you know, technically the producer of our record. So we're like, we want you to be the producer of our record because you, you, you are the producer of our record. And well, maybe the next um, one it'll be, you know, his show. Who knows? I mean, I guess it's too early to talk about, you know. Uh, I, I was going to say LP and a number, and then I don't even know how many records you guys have made. So. Right, yeah. like, probably getting close yeah, to 10 we, now. Right, right. I mean, we sort of have... Uh, I, I, I'd be lying if I said... I, I think we actually technically probably have more than 10 records, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess it's like splits and comps and all sure, these different sure, things. Sure. But, like, I I guess we're we're technically calling this our 10th record, but... But yeah, so I mean, I, I've loved working with Benji even more than I, I, I knew it would be cool. cool. I knew just being around Benji would be cool. I Like any time I think that you're making a record and you're just around creative people, I think that's a, a great environment to be in. Um, we made our, our previous record um, out in L.A. We made... So this record that just came out is American Fall. We made yep. American Spring, or kind of the sister record to it, out in L.A. a couple years earlier than that. And it was just the same thing. It was just like being out in L.A., being around creative people. We ended up spending time with Tim from Rancid and uh, Kenny Carkeet from AWOL Nation produced the record. And oh, wow. then just different different people cycled in and out. Tom played on the record. Like, it... Uh, one thing that I, I've really learned is if you're when you're making a record, just being around other creative people is it, it's something that that gives uh, you a shot in the arm whenever things kind of can begin to start to feel static or yeah. uh, or or just when things start to feel routine. Here here comes somebody else in your life who is just like this really cool person that can have the you know even just just by osmosis or just by something that they say might kind of click something in your head that gives you an idea that you, you might not have had before. Absolutely, man. Well, hey, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, you know, thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, I know you guys have a big tour coming up uh, in about a month, a big headline tour. Straight yeah, from the yeah, it's going to be. I'll be yeah. at the Detroit date. Uh, I think it's the first oh, yeah. show, so I'll be there. Uh, can't it's wait. Wicked, wicked. Uh, yeah, yeah what do you guys have in store? I mean, you know, we've already pretty much got our full year booked out. So wow. we'll be mostly in the U.S. and Europe. Um, there is some talk of, of being in Canada. We're not 100% sure that that's going to happen, but I think that there's there's a high likelihood. Hope so. Um, we're, we're looking at South America and maybe, maybe Asia. I personally would really like to go back to Japan. It's been a really long time. And uh, Japan's a crazy country and a really, <laughs> really cool culture. I'd love it's to go amazing. over there. So. Yeah, we'll see. We'll 200 see. shows, but, you think, again? <laughs> I think, I think, I actually think that there's a chance. But after this year, we're, we're dialing it back. We'll reconnect, we'll reconnect uh, in a year, and we'll talk about it. We'll right on, right is. on. Oh, you, you can just ask for the number, and I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, well, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for having me on. This is really fun. Of course, man. Of course, all the best, and uh, Happy New Year. Word up, you too. I'll catch you in Detroit. Okay. See you, Justin. All right, peace out. So there it is with Justin. Sadly, I never found out about the pies. I don't know what kind of pies they were. I don't know if they came out of the oven okay. I don't know who ate the pies, but there were pies being cooked. <laughs> I want to thank Justin so much for, for taking the time. Shout out to his family for letting us use the landline phone. Man, that was a throwback remembering those days. And I'm very excited because tomorrow night, 
I get to go see Anti-Flag live. It's the first date of their tour. So once you've bought tickets for the Silverstein Tonight Live tour, definitely also pick up tickets for the Anti-Flag tour. And I hope to see you at our tour, and I hope you check out them because they are one of the greatest live bands out there. Again, there's so many great Anti-Flag albums, let alone great Anti-Flag songs, but I think I'm going to go with the classic, the first Anti-Flag song I ever heard, The Anthem. And if you don't know this, well, you got to know this. Here it is, Die for the Government on Lead Singer Syndrome. Peace and love. We'll see you next week. You gotta die, gotta die, gotta die for your government. Die for your country, that shit. You You gotta gotta die, die, gotta die, gotta die for your government. Die for your country, that shit. Yeah.